0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. Coming up, we have a conversation with National Review columnist and best-selling author Rich Lowry on his latest book on nationalism and where America, a divided America, goes from here. That's coming right up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today we're going to be discussing a very interesting new book called The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free by Rich Lowry. Now, many of you who are involved in conservative circles will recognize Rich Lowry, of course. He is the editor of National Review magazine. He was actually selected by William F. Buckley as his successor and editor of that magazine. His columns and editorials are always fascinating and well worth the read. And he agreed to come on the show and discuss his new book and what America like looks like going forward in the age of Trump, in the age of populism, and in an age of nearly unprecedented division. Thanks so much for joining us. Here's that conversation. So maybe give us a bit of history and background of nationalism, because it's a really charged term. And over the last couple of years, it's become a very popular term on all sides of the aisle. You have the Trump nationalist, the America First crowd. You have the left saying that people are the conservative movement. It's slumping into nationalism. So for the purposes of framing the discussion for the listeners and the viewers, how do you define nationalism? And how do you respond uh, to critiques that nationalism is a dangerous force?
1: Yeah, so a couple things. One, just to get real technical about the definitions. People tend to think patriotism, that's the word for everything good about national loyalty, national feeling. Nationalism is the word for everything bad. That's not true. So get technical about it. Patriotism comes from the Latin word patre, same root as patriarchy, father, fatherland is loyalty to your own. Nationalism is the idea or the doctrine that a distinct people united by common culture uh, common history very often a common language should govern a distinct territory that's that's nationalism and I think there have been forms of it uh, throughout human history um, ancient Israel was kind of a kind of nation Joan of Arc I discuss her and in, uh, in, in my book when she you know has this vision that I'm going to free France from the English that's mm-hmm. kind of a nationalistic sentiment but modern nationalism as we know it uh, rises up in the 19th century it's a, a liberal movement. It's a movement led by people who believe in popular sovereignty, equal rights, uh, and are uh, rising up in opposition to empires or to monarchs, and uh, are united, animated by the idea that the nation has its own rights and claims and should govern itself. Now, any any phenomenon in our fallen world can be distorted and used for malign ends, and nationalism certainly has, because it's such an old and powerful force that uh, a lot of different movements realize that power and want to Mm. tap into it. But people make a mistake if they think Nazism, for instance, is identical uh, to nationalism. It's just not. And in World War II, it was the democratic, small-D democratic nationalist Churchill de Gaulle, FDR, who resisted Hitler, who was more than just a nationalist. You know, he had this cracked racial vision of Arians ruling uh, Germany and ruling all of uh, Europe and this uh, quasi-imperial... Uh, lunatic racial vision.
0: So the word nationalism to people, it's kind of interesting. One of the reasons you have to define your terms is because when you say the word, different people hear different things. And and it's even caused this sort of cleavage on the right, because it wasn't all that long ago, maybe, what, 15 years ago, that a lot of the people over at, say, like the Weekly Standard were promoting nationalism as a way to bring the country together. But now that Trump is using the word, and, and now suddenly it becomes a much scarier word... To what extent has Trump's rise actually triggered a second look at nationalism and caused people uh, like yourself and a number of other right-wing intellectuals to really start to take a close look at nationalism and the potential that it has for America going forward?
1: Uh, I think it has triggered such a, a rethinking among uh, some folks, you know, my, myself uh, included. And I think just you go to the average conservative audience now and you say you're a nationalist and no one really blinks, blinks uh, an and, uh, uh, eyelid anymore. But there are still folks on the right, especially a little more libertarian-oriented, who recoil at the concept and think it's it's dangerous. So there still is that cleavage on the right over the concept and the idea, and and whoever wins out in this internal debate on the on the right will have a lot to do with what, how the Trump phenomenon ends, which no one can really say they they know. You know, does he fall on his face next year and he, he's out and and People are turning their backs and forgetting about him, uh, you know, uh, by late 2021 or even sooner, or is he a two-term president? Um, right. So, so w- we don't know that. I just think that uh, nationalism needs to be thoughtly, thoughtfully integrated into the conservative program going forward. And I think it's always been part of con- a thread within conservatism, even if people weren't using the explicit term.
0: To what extent is this cleavage on the right a division between sort of conservatives and libertarians with libertarians being inherently suspicious of nationalism, not just because of its history, but because it kind of uh, beckons people to a higher loyalty. Libertarians, of course, are very suspicious of higher loyalties, which is understandable to to a degree. But to what extent does that explain the cleavage on the right?
1: I think it's it's clearly part of it. And you're right. So so the the the. I spent a lot of time in my book talking about the American nationalist tradition, and there is one mm-hmm. uh, that tends to be neglected. You don't get an American revolution without nationalism, because the idea is our, our nation's going to govern itself. It's not going to be ruled by an empire. You don't get the ratification of the Constitution without uh, the nationalists, you know, Hamilton and, and Washington pushing for it. You don't get victory in the Civil War. So it's a tradition that really begins with Hamilton, um, you know, who's not a monster of U.S. history by, by any means. But... Uh, he does believe we should have a strong and capable national government, and you say that, and a lot of libertarians are are going to uh, recoil and uh, th- think that inherently, you know, is a uh, uh, offense against our, our system or has inherent dangers uh, to our liberties. And certainly, the founders understood, you know, their dangers, which is why we get the Constitution. You get the strong and capable national government that can actually govern in the way the Articles of Confederation couldn't, but you get limits, and uh, you, you you need. You need both. But I just think it's a mistake for people to, and, uh, and people on the right do this as well, people on the left, to think that nationalism equals tribalism. Yeah. It doesn't. As you point out, it's a higher loyalty. Uh, it doesn't mean it should overwhelm every single other loyalty. We should be still be loyal to our families and to our faith and to our neighborhoods, mm-hmm. obviously. But it's it's something that all of us can uh, feel as though we can bol- belong to above race, above ethnic- ethnicity, sect, and partisanship. In a time when identity politics is so... Strong. I think this is a um, uh, an important vehicle for unity that uh, can't be neglected.
0: So, what do you say? So, you've got the libertarian critique, and then from the other direction, you've got the more traditionalist critique that says nationalism is dangerous because it's a higher loyalty that isn't God or Christianity or faith. How do you re- so that the nationalism, sort of like America as God, is, is is it's sort of a form of idolatry, is basically what they would say from the other angle. So, how would you respond to that criticism?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I don't think the the nation um, should trump your your faith or your conscience or your individuality. So I, I, I believe, you know, in a, in a liberal nationalism, which I believe has been the American tradition, right. um, you know, that we, we've gotten this balance right in a way, um, you know, uh, European countries and Central Eastern European countries haven't necessarily, which for me, just goes to another aspect of American uh, exceptionalism, that our nationalism is different and better, mm-hmm. um, and, and always was seeded with this, these kind of liberal, liberal um, ideas. And, and so, so I, I think two things are important. One, the, the fact that we have a nation-state is really important. You need a capable government, and the extent and the power of the nation are really important. Uh, but you need the ideals as well, and um, you, you know you read throughout our history we did a lot of uh, unworthy things when we we're expanding across the continent. but the idea was we 're spreading progress we 're spreading, spreading small uh, d democracy so that 's always been caught up in our our national project
0: so before we get into some of of the not objections but more uh, practical and pragmatic. Uh, problems with, with, with the case for nationalism. I just, What is the case for nationalism as you lay out in your book? I could give a longer intro to that, but you wrote the book. So why don't for the, the listeners and the viewers, you lay out what's the Rich Lowry case for nationalism?
1: Yes, yeah, so we've already touched on a lot of it, um, <clears throat> that the definition of the word is, is wrong, that it's not um, identical to fascism or to Nazism. In fact, it rose with the emergence of modern democracy beginning in the 19th century. And, you know, we, there have been other forms of government throughout history. And, you know, there have been empires, obviously, throughout history, some, you know, quite long-lasting. But they've never been democratic. And that's because in an empire that uh, encompasses a, a bunch of different peoples and a d- bunch of different nations, you, you need someone to decide and someone to rule. Uh, someone. There's going to be a dominant language. Uh, there's going to be a dominant culture, inevitably. And whatever that choice is, the other nations and the other peoples aren't going to like it. And they're going to strain against it. And the history is whenever the repressive and coercive ability of an imperial power gives way, the nations go their own way. And this is the experience with the great European empires, Ottoman, Habsburg, uh, Russian experience with the Soviet empire in the 20th century as soon as it could no longer maintain control. The Poles are like, we want to govern ourselves, as I have yeah. throughout history, even though people have been concerned, uh, have tried desperately to deny them that ability throughout history. And it's true with the Western colonial empires uh, as well, uh, the British and, and the French. As soon as you can't keep your boot on the neck of um, a, 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 another people, uh, they will want to govern themselves as a, as a matter of basic uh, dignity. And you, you need also um, – I, I, So I. So I think in that sense, nationalism is inherently democratic. Also in the sense that to have a true democracy, you need uh, some common feeling and some social trust. Right. And if you look at societies in the 20th and 21st century that have most lacked a sense of nationalism, it's in Africa and the Middle East because a lot of colonial history and artificial borders. And it's not as though having no national feeling makes this place better. It makes it much worse because you, you have to have loyalty and belonging to something. So it's to tribe or to sect, and then you don't trust the other tribe, you're not a member of the other tribe or the yeah. sect, and these societies get torn apart. They have civil wars, they have coups, and um, if, you, if, you, if you have a, tr- a truly uh, unified nation where all people feel a sense of common feeling and belonging, then you have the, the trust that makes democracy and a market economy uh, possible, so that's a big part of the case. And then also, as I was discussing earlier, it, this is part of the American tradition. This is part of what made us great. Runs through Hamilton, runs through Lincoln, runs through T. R., runs through F. D. R. and Reagan. Now, all those figures—they're different iterations. they are different emphases. they are different ideologies, which goes to the fact that nationalism is a plastic force. Um, It—you it, you need, you need to know more about someone uh, to know where they are in a whole host of policy issues, other than the fact that they're a nationalist. But I, I think that the, the the kind of lowest common denominator is of nationalism. We're going to put our people first, we're going to put our interest first, and we're going to be really uh, jealous of our, our, of our sovereignty. Now, you can, you can uh, graft all sorts of ideologies on top of that. Bernie Sanders has some nationalistic impulses and attitudes. they kind of been beaten out of them uh, recently, but you saw it in 2016. I discussed this in the book. Ezra Klein, editor of Vox, says, Bernie, you like poor people. Best thing for poor people. Let them all from around the world come here where he's like no no, no. that's the Koch brother idea Too libertarian we can't do that we have to be loyal to our own workers so that's Mm -hmm. basically a nationalist sentiment now how you what's in the true interest of the nation what's in the true interest of our workers that's a huge argument but the starting point should be that our our first commitment is to them rather than other people around the world
0: well this is why there was so much crossover between the Trump supporters and the Bernie Sanders supporters one of the things I, I, I one of the threads I wanted to pull on with you is to what extent is this idea of uh, of nationalism being? Um, politically useful at this period in American history as a, a cohering and cohesive force, a bit like being just in time to be too late. So I really enjoyed your work on this. And then Yoram Hozoni also had a book, The Virtue of Nationalism, also had some fascinating ideas. You mentioned Israel earlier in this podcast, and he actually focuses on Israel. And the biblical Israel is like one of the first um, well-thought-out versions of the nation. Um but to a degree, this is coming in response. This reconsidering of nationalism is coming in response to Trump, which regardless of, uh, of what your view of Trump is, he was an enormously disturbing force. He was a symptom of, uh, of an American political landscape that was changing before anybody really managed to get their finger on it. So to what degree do you think it's possible for this, this populism, this new political uh, landscape to be harnessed into nationalism um, as a force that can bring everybody together?
1: Yeah, so I mean, this is a this is a tricky thing, right? Because uh, whenever Nat- Trump says something, you you have at least half the people say, "Okay, I hate that thing, whatever it is." Yeah, <laughs> so Trump saying I'm a nationalist makes nationalism uh, more controversial, at least among half the electorate. So I don't know how to get get a- around uh, that. I I do think. Um, Whatever the ultimate word for it is, I think nationalism is the appropriate one. Maybe post-Trump, you need to come up with, with something. Defending our, um, this is another argument I make in the book, is, is culture is really important to nations. And it's really important to our nation. And I- ideals are important, but you, you wouldn't have the ideals and you, uh, if, if you didn't have the culture uh, at the beginning. So defending that is crucially important for our future and it's really basic things it's like the english language um key ingredient of national cohesion when you don't have it switzerland is an example uh, uh, exception but usually you don't have it you get um major social turmoil and even countries falling apart you've seen this in canada uh, 20 years ago quebec tried to go its own way french-speaking province in the middle of an english-speaking country you see it in catalonia now uh, in spain so de- defending the primacy of the english language is a huge thing. Teaching our history truthfully means acknowledging our sins, but not telling the story as one of unrelieved uh, repression and woe, but the glorious story of, you know, of free people in a blessed land uh, in a way that our schools and our universities don't is hugely important. Defending our, our national heroes, our founders, uh, our civic uh, rights and rituals. You know, Thanksgiving, people kind of scoffed at Trump. He said a couple of weeks ago, you know, Thanksgiving is under threat now. It is under threat, I think. You know, it's, it, it's not... Uh, we're not seeing the full force of it, by 10 years from now, I think there'll be a lot of people on the left really arguing it's a holiday about genocide, you know, um, because of what we did to the Indian Americans. So, <laughs> this, this cultural agenda, I think, is really important um, to uh, conservatism and to defending um, the nation, but we, we've, it, it, most of this would have been common sense and non, non-controversial 40 years ago, right? JFK, and his voters, most of them would have agreed with this. They wouldn't even question about it. But what's happened is this cosmopolitan wave is broken over our, our society, beginning in the '60s and the '70s. Sort of cosmopolitanism was an outsider attitude; it was the attitude of critics of society. Now it's the attitude of insiders and elites. So we kind of have a denationalizing elite for the first time ever, and then we have a business elite that you know. Although I'm a free market guy, and and I you know I love. Uh, entrepreneurs and uh, successful businesses, there's more of a transnational attitude to the business elite than there was a hundred years ago. So the, the idea of the nation is under pressure mm-hmm. and the cultural core of our nation is under pressure uh, more than ever before. And this, this will remain true whatever happens to Trump and after Trump is gone and conservatives need to have a response to
0: it. Because one of the, it's interesting you brought up the example of Thanksgiving because one of the difficulties I see with this idea which which I'm I'm, I'm very um, like sort of philosophically supportive of but but pragmatically I'm, I'm I'm having a bit of trouble getting my head around it because so I'm, let's take the Thanksgiving example when they try to say Thanksgiving is an emblem of the genocide of of the American Indians where like that that's a really historically ignorant position when you look at the first Thanksgiving none of none of the the conflict between the the puritan settlers and the Indians started until after the governor, William Bradford, died. Uh, William Bradford, who really encouraged the Christian settlers to treat everybody really well, to ensure that any land that was purchased was paid for fairly and all of that. The original Thanksgiving, it genuinely was a meeting with culture of cultures on equal grounds. And so when you're looking back at unifying figures, you can look at somebody like William Bradford, who avoided later mistakes that were made and later atrocities that were genuinely committed, and said, you know, William Bradford is one of those American forebears. Bears that helps us slide our way forward. But then what you're going to get is well, William Bradford was also by the standards of of today, a homophobe and a transphobe. And the issue is that the the, the target is moving so quickly that that everybody will inevitably become, Uh, somebody that we have to trash i'm surprised it hasn't come for example for martin luther king jr yet because he held the traditional christian position on homosexuality just to give you one example so it seems to me like these figures are being just as we point to them they're getting torn down as fast as we can we can highlight them as figures worth pursuing how do do we get around that
1: yeah so i mean that phenomenon you're absolutely right it's it's really true um it's really fast moving and all we can do is sort of resist it with, with every fiber we have. And I think the standard should be, as you point out uh, with with Bradford, is you know were they better than kind of the, the average uh, attitude of, of their time? I, I think that's important. And then also what what is the scale of their historic achievements and the plus side. So Jefferson, you know, was he better than the average attitude? I'm not sure, you know, pr- probably not by the end uh, on, on race. I think it probably would have been a secessionist, you know, if you'd lived, unfortunately. But you get the Declaration of Independence. You get two uh, presidential uh, terms. You get the founding University of Virginia, you know, you know where, where I went. You get uh, uh, huge um, uh, influence on the development of freedom of religion in this country. So those are all huge plus size. But I, I, don't, I don't know how Jefferson's going to survive <clears throat> the current no. environment. You know, it wouldn't shock me 20 years from now there's not a Jefferson Memorial. Um, but, uh, we just, we just have to make the, the intellectual and moral case, uh, for, for these folks. And the advantage we have is still, you know, even though elite opinion is, is almost universally hostile, we still, you know, popular opinion is mostly with us right. and we, we just need to, uh, hold to that, uh, fast, you know, as hard as we can and push back against the elites.
0: So interestingly, that brings me, because I actually, um, you won't remember this, but I, I met you this summer, actually, at the National Conservatism Conference, and I found that to be a, a fascinating conference, because there was uh, all, all of these people who had really thought through the the, the the macro philosophies on the issues that we saw happening on the ground, and I asked I asked Patrick Deneen the same question, and I'd really like to hear your take, is coming out of that conference where you heard some of the smartest people speak to these issues, um, uh, like you were one of the presenters, Yoram Hazzoni presented, Patrick Deneen presented. It was really a, uh, it was really a phenomenal uh, conference and a lot of food for thought. But what did strike me is that a lot of the people who were at the conference would have opposed this phenomenon, the Trump phenomenon, back in 2015-2016. It really was an attempt to try and figure out how to harness these forces and point them in a positive direction, which I'm very supportive of, but to what extent do you think the national conservatism idea is is an idea that's cooked up in the laboratories of conservative intellectuals, rather than something that can actually work on the ground and harvest real votes and drive real change?
1: Yeah, so it's a it's a good question. I do think you know there there is a large element with Trump of backselling because he comes out of nowhere and blows everything up. And usually, when you have a, a movement. Kind of take over a party. It's been brewing for a while. You know, right. the, the New Left took over the Democrats. You know, nineteen seventy-two, but you could see it coming. You know, the huge conflicts within the party. You know, for years prior to that, even you know, bloodshed literally in the streets. Um, this just came out of almost nowhere. Not not quite nowhere, but almost nowhere. So there's been a lot of you know thinking around it, kind of after the fact, which is an unusual way to go about it. Usually do the thinking first, <laughs> um, but I think it's appropriate. You know, the the way I, I think about it here at Nash review is uh this crazy thing happened so let's kick the tires of our assumptions you know let's open the aperture and and not necessarily reject some things that we we thought um uh should just be not even considered uh it doesn't mean you throw out all your principles or all all your ideas maybe they're right maybe they survive uh these tests so i i think the back hill back there is definitely backfilling but it's it's appropriate and what else what else is anyone supposed supposed to do now, in terms of whether any of this can motivate voters, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think, I mean, Trump's shown it can, but with Trump, it, it is very difficult to disentangle what is just like the, the sheer personal force, uh-huh. and what is the force of these, these attitudes and these ideas. So if, if Marco Rubio plopped down in 2016, and it said all the same things Trump did, base, you know, in a different way, in a Marco Rubio way, the same positions would he have won the nomination or it was was you know the trump celebrity and this trump magnetism a huge a huge part of it um i'm not i'm not sure i i know the answer to that
0: yeah rubio was my guy i'd like to think he could have won but that might be wishful thinking on my part
1: yeah um so but i do think this style of politics though not necessarily the way trump does it but a more nationalist populist uh, Republican Party has more of an opportunity, probably, to cross racial lines than a more stereotypical like Mitt Romney Republicanism, because I right. do think there are African American, Latino, middle class, working class males who they love the flag, you know, who they are are patriotic and they are, damn it, I worked hard to get here, um, and and don't mind, you know, sort of the, some of the machismo and kind of tough love uh, attitudes. And if I were Trump, I'd be working that all the time. You know, he's not going to get a, a lot of these voters, but he might get enough in, of an increment to make an, a, a difference in a really close, um, election, but post Trump, this, this needs to be thought through and inter- integrated into the, the party's program, I think.
0: Yeah. So this brings me to, to the toughest set of questions. It's something I've really been, been grappling with, and I'd love to hear your take on it, especially after, after reading you on, on nationalism is, is, is one of just to give you a one example that highlights what i'm talking about i remember when uh, the 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 sort of shock poll and we don't know how accurate this was because the questions were probably pretty leading but they discovered that when uh, when 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 putin was accused of going after hillary um support for putin and the republican party spiked and for me w- what that was an indicator of was this this really interesting cleavage in the country now where it is two Americas, and those two Americas are, to my mind, I'd love to be corrected if you disagree, utterly irreconcilable, right? You have... well, just look at look at how far the Democrats have gone on the campaign trail, right? You've got Beto O'Rourke sending up the test balloon on defunding religious institutions. Um, you have Elizabeth Warren saying she's going to wear a Planned Parenthood scarf when she heads uh, when when she, she gets inaugurated. God forbid. Uh, you have Pete Buttigieg, who uh, people aren't noticing how insidious this is, but it's trying to basically claim the mantle of Christianity in order to beat Christians over the head with it. Basically saying, "I'm uh, I'm the real Christian" and things like that. And so I. I think that there's a lot of a lot of evangelicals, there's a lot of people um, in the Rust Belt, there's a lot of Trump people who look at that stuff and say, if I have to choose between a Russian thug and somebody who's going to shutter my church, somebody who's going to force gender ideology down the throats of my children, somebody who supports dismembering a baby at 29 weeks in the womb, um, at this point, maybe I would side with a Russian thug. Like I don't think people thought that question through because... At the end of the day, um, the term American without shared values becomes sort of a useless term. And I, th- to what extent does half of America see the other half of America as the thing that's going to destroy America? Because it's pretty hard not to see somebody who so- supports abortion up until birth. Right. Pete Buttigieg said when the baby takes its first breath and he used a Bible verse to defend that somebody who's who says that kids should be transitioned. Right. Literal castrations, mastectomies, unhealthy teen girls, you name it. To what extent can this abyss be bridged? Because looking at it to me, I don't see where we could actually make a compromise with these people. And if we were going to, I don't think they would.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a really it's a really important and consequential question, and I'm not. Uh, uh, I try to be an optimist. I'm not particularly optimistic about this. The cultural right. divide, as you say, it's it's deeper uh, than ever before. Um, it wouldn't shock me. I know this sounds alarmist. But if Trump's reelected, it wouldn't shock me if we saw some really no kidding defiance of federal authority out of California. You know, mm. at some some point in the next um, four years. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, it's not. You'll you'll see conservatives, you know, compared to the Civil War, which I think is ridiculous. You know, obviously we're not shooting at each other. Um, we're we we're not even the. Uh, in the decade prior to the civil war in the United States was incredibly you know divisive with violence on the, the floor of uh, Congress and, and we're we're just not there yet either. And actually in the scheme of American history it was an incredible period of social peace now in terms of you know riots and crime and all that. <clears throat> but there there is this deep uh, cultural divide that's hard to see how it heals absent some sort of crisis yeah uh, that's that's a, a, un unforeseeable um but the thing is there's not you know also a difference the civil war there there's there is a, a pretty clear geographic divide and now you know it's all mixed up everywhere it's like an urban and sub, uh suburban slash you know rural um divide so so it's not it's not as as clear um but it's 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 hugely concerning i mean just people with totally different ideas of what the constitution is. Of what the good life is of what morality is and and as you say a really hostile view of of the other side as an existential threat
0: Well, biology and human life
1: right and what life is yeah
0: because i i think one of the interesting examples of this is the difference between the civil rights movement and black lives matter right when you looked at like the civil rights movement of of the late 50s and then the 60s you saw a movement that subscribed to black liberation theology, a lot of them had socialist or communist ideas, but at the same time, they were making the case for their agenda based on fundamental American values, constitutional values, Christian values, and they weren't saying, come over to our side and adopt our ideology, they were saying, you are failing your own Christian values, you are failing American values, so the civil rights movement, despite the fact that many of them were left-wing figures, was firmly entrenched inside the American tradition, Black Lives Matter, on the other hand, actually has the destruction of the nuclear family and abortion until birth written into their platform if you go to their website. So it's a very different movement. And I'm just, I know you've expressed your your cynicism already, but I'm very curious as to whether the term American means anything in the age of Trump.
1: I think the term American does. I I think we're divided about a lot of things, um, but not... Uh, that um, you know, eighty percent of people are you. Well, maybe I should. Maybe I'm speaking too soon there. Most people are proud of this country. <laughs> I'm not sure how how high the percentage is, but um, I, I think you're absolutely right about civil rights. And I think a lot of those figures in, in the civil rights movement, because they were left wing, they would have ended up you know over time like where the black Black Lives Matter is. But there's a difference between the two movements. And you're absolutely right. The civil rights movement and its glory days was making the case we are Americans right? Yeah. And you're failing your own ideals, and your own institutions, your own uh, constitution. Uh, Black Lives Matter and associated attitudes and movements is really um, more concerned with tearing down the nation. And you see this with the 1619 Project, the New York Times, uh, yeah. important to focus on slavery. There's a lot of moving and true stuff in that series. There's also a lot of lies about ourselves. And this is also just the sweep of human history, a really bizarre thing. Because usually, throughout all history, you lie about the other guy, right? So, you know, the French lie about the Germans, not that they need to lie very much to make them look bad. The Germans lie about the French, but lying about yourself and trying to delegitimize your own nation is something extraordinarily new. And um, uh, and that's, you know, Black Lives Matter sees the nation as rotten to its core, you know, as, as uh, shot through with white supremacy in, inexorably, and from the beginning, Beto O'Rourke, you know, in his disgraceful campaign, one of his moments was he had this San Antonio roundtable with recent refugees and telling these people, desperate people, who best thing that's ever ever going to happen to them or their families, they got here. What's he tell them about America? Right? It's it's a white supremacist country, and um, God knows we've had our historical failings. We have our failings now, um, but but th- that's that's about tearing us. Um, tearing us down and and ripping out in any ligaments that might unite us, and it's it's a really distressing
0: phenomenon. So when you point to the sort of the pantheon of American heroes, one of the things I was wondering, reading a lot of your work, and then some of your subsequent um, commentary on on your work in National Review, The Atlantic, etc. Is it when you say you know T. R. the uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, Alexander Hamilton? Uh, that's going to be really uh, appealing to a lot of conservatives. Teddy Roosevelt, just with the sort of the populist rethink, maybe. But but like pe- people are going to be really attracted to that. To what degree can a pantheon be created that might have more? Universal appeal, like throwing in uh, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and and all of these people, and then really emphasizing uh, this this pantheon because those heroes do exist. Um, it's always amusing to me that Harriet Tubman is, is 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 vaunted as a hero by the left, considering that she was a a deeply deeply religious gun owning. Uh, a person who would more or less disagree with them on all of their ideological positions. But can we start to put together a nationalism that does have broader appeal? Because my fear is, uh, reading um, both your stuff, um, Yoram's stuff, and some of the other things that have been written, is that it appeals to people like me and like you, but it falls short as a unifier because we can't get it to reach the people we need it to reach for it to become a cohesive, uh, a cohesive ideology.
1: Yeah, so I agree with you. Um, a slight distinction when I mention those guys, you know, I'm saying they're 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 nationalist. I, I don't yeah. uh, I don't know enough about Harriet Tubman's thought or or uh, really about Frederick Douglass called Douglass even necessarily a nationalist, but they're obviously American heroes. And th- th- this is something where I think the 1619 Project was right um, in its lead essay, which was poisonously dishonest in a lot of respects but the fact that African-Americans are part of the American cultural nation from the very beginning, uh, participated in every American war, even when they had no rights or coming back to a country that was going to repress them, fought for freedom, you know, in in this country and expand the, the, uh, our notion of rights, all that hugely important, hugely inspiring and something that conservatives need to understand and soak themselves in and celebrate. So Frederick Douglass, get him on the currency. You know, he's one of the great yeah, right. statesmen of the 19th century. He looks great, right? <laughs> he, he doesn't take a bad photograph, most photographed man by some estimates in the 19th century. But he, he's, that's a key part of the American, not the African-American, yes. the American experience. Um, so there, there is this you know, t- terrible breach um, that happened between African-American voters and the, the conservative movement um, with the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And it's a it's tragedy in my mind that this breach uh, has occurred because African Americans are so American. They're such a part of what this country mm-hmm. uh, what this country is. And just in sheer electoral terms, if um, you know college educated uh, whites keep trending against us, we have to go get um, more voters elsewhere. And it's, it is it's been working class whites, you know, in twenty sixteen, and that that trend had been building over time. But it's also going to have to be um, a, a, other people of, of different colors, um, and, and backgrounds. Uh, yeah. so we really need to work on
0: that. Well, and in reference to shared values, I remember, uh, I worked with a pro-life group and we set up a pro-life display along Pennsylvania Avenue at Obama's second inauguration. And as people came off the grounds from listening to the speech, there was tens of thousands of African-Americans coming out and they're walking past the display. And my reaction was, they're not going to be happy about this at all. Right. Obama being the most pro-abortion president ever elected. Almost every single one of them stopped and said, love what you're doing, we're so pro-life, they were, you know, taking money out of their wallets, and these people are wearing bulletproof vest-sized Obama buttons, and yet they're hugely supportive of this pro-life display, and so the shared values are there, and if... In in a much broader section of the population, I think than most people assume, it's just we're we're too segmented, and that's why I do see a, a potential coalition built around values and the, and a lot of the things that you talk about in your book. But I guess from a, a pragmatic practical perspective, when you're looking, let's let's narrow it down for a minute, just to, to 2020, um, and the scenarios, what happens? Do you think if if like trace it out first, if Trump wins?
1: So if Trump wins, uh, he'll win, you know, and there's clearly a path there, you know, this date, probably give him about a 50-50 chance, but there's no way he's winning the popular vote. He's going to lose the popular vote by more, unless something extraordinary happens, and he's got to thread the electoral needle again, and polling, you know, last month or so, and there's been some shock over this, shows he's right there, you know, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. So, you know, his his path uh, also is is more dependent than it should be because of the way he's governed and conduct himself on just completely destroying the other side. Uh, But he's really adept at that, and um, all all those uh, Democrats that you likely uh, think have a chance to be nominated have have big vulnerabilities. Uh So, um, what happens? You know, I think it's going to be a second term, you know, it's, it's obviously much better than, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, um, but it's going to be rocky because I think he's, he's had trouble retaining good people. Uh, it's going to be even harder in a second term. And it's also, uh, it's not clear what the agenda would be. Um, uh, you know, we haven't heard anything on, on what his second term agenda uh, would be. And he probably still won't have the House, you know, so there, there won't be any sort of governing partnership uh, with the Republican Congress, which there was the first two years, which w- was provided a, a helpful focus, I think. So, um, you know, better than the alternative, but uh, uh, rocky.
0: And so uh, then the, the second set of questions is, one, who do you think the Democrats are most likely to nominate? Which I know is a dangerous question to ask before Iowa, but just take a shot with that in mind. And then second of all, um, what do you think happens if they beat Trump?
1: Yeah, so I have no idea now. You know, I had a clear theory of the case two months ago. Most of the race, I thought Biden was overestimated and uh, would, would um, deflate. Um, and still, you know, he still could finish fourth in Iowa and fourth New Hampshire, and it's all over. Um, but it's, he's also showed more resilience than I would have expected, uh, certainly in the national polling. And I think he has more paths than the, the other candidates. Because if he wins Iowa or New Hampshire, he's probably just a nominee. Um, if he loses both, if depending on how he loses and, and who beats him, he can still have a chance to revive in Nevada and and South Carolina. Um, but obviously, like, really, really weak candidate. Uh, major performative uh, problems. Yeah. And I would, just a, ri- a risky candidate. You know, the, the thing is, he's supposed to be the safe guy. But you can't really throw him out into an intense national campaign with any confidence that he's not going to Really step on himself at a crucial moment. Um, but I, so I might, at this moment, for the first time ever, I might get him a slightly higher percentage than anyone else. But I think Budadej, you know, even though it's kind of ridiculous, uh, South Bend mayor, 8,500 votes total in his re election in 2015. You know, <laughs> student council presidents get more absolute votes than that in, in some schools. But hyper articulate, uh, pivoted shrewdly uh, when he realized everyone was making a mistake, chasing Bernie down the track. To you know the quote unquote moderate lane or relative moderate lane could win Iowa could win New Hampshire uh, is a real thing. Um, Bernie, shockingly, uh, I think is, is stronger than he's ever been at the moment. Uh, despite the heart attack, despite Warren's rise, which is abated, uh, he could win Iowa. He could win New Hampshire. You know, and then it, then it's a real desperate movement on the party part of the party to stop them. Warren obviously given away a lot of ground and momentum. Still, there's time. You know, she could revive as well. So this is a way of just saying, I just have no idea. And I also mm-hmm. think there's probably still some chance of someone out there in Iowa catching fire just on the ground, like a Klobuchar or a Booker who's been neglected. Um, so I, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think it's really fluid and, uh, <clears throat> and I think they're all flawed and, um, yeah, Bernie could be stronger than Warren. I think, uh, I assume Biden and Buttigieg are stronger than him, but Biden, we talked about the performance Buttigieg, I think, they could have a real chance. The Trump campaign to kind of Romneyize him. He is a little bloodless management consultant type, and could have a real African American turnout problem. So um, I, I, I don't. At the moment, you know, it always looks different once fine, someone finally has won the nomination. But at the moment it doesn't look like a really strong field.
0: I feel like a troll asking a conservative author this question, but what do you think of Andrew Yang?
1: You know, I uh, I've come around a little bit. I am not with him on robots. I think he's wrong on robots, and I also think he's wrong on universal basic income. Right. Uh, I I think labor-saving technology is a great engine of economic growth and wage growth. It drives productivity. Unless you have productivity go- going up, you don't have higher wages. And if it's really true that labor-saving technology just throws everyone out of work, we all everyone would have been unemployed, you know, a hundred years ago, and we stopped being farmers because you know we had better farming agricultural technology. Um, but just to, uh, in terms of a cause candidate, hugely successful. You know, there's a debate, two debates ago, there's a whole segment devoted to his idea, universal basic income. And you had, you know, not the most important candidates, uh, but a couple of them endorsing it. Julian Costra I believe, and um, Tulsi Gabbard. So, and he has also, just in the last debate, it didn't come up, but, but he showed some range in the last debate. I thought he was winsome and charming. He's actually thinking, which is unusual for a candidate. So this is a long way of saying I like him, but I think on his core thing, he's wrong.
0: Final question is, what do you think happens to the GOP if Trump loses? Like there's a proviso. I know Mike Pence must think that, you know, he's going to be the heir to the crown after all this. It's the only reason he would have put up with as much as he's put up with. Uh, But it seems very unlikely that 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 Pence is going to actually manage to take any leadership role after this. He's he'll have been too tainted by whatever these impeachment uh, proceedings do and stuff like that. But what's your analysis? If Trump loses in 2020, what's left of the Republican party, which as Trump tweeted today, and most days, actually, I think he has a 95% approval rating in the GOP right now.
1: Yeah. His bond with the party is absolutely extraordinary. And like nothing we've ever seen, you know, Obama was really bonded to his base, but this is something different. Um, it's, it's hard to say, because I think if Trump loses, we're in like, it's passing the event horizon into a totally different world, and he's not going to go out gracefully. Um, uh, he's not going to go out easily you know, for, for the party, um, but parties generally aren't kind to one-term presidents, and I, I think you can see a lot of people who are telling every single pollster they're with them now, turning their backs on them really quickly. Um, and then we're, we're in this debate that's, that's been going on now, uh, but will even be more intense and feel higher stakes. It so will be higher stakes. Just what is the party? What are our ideas? What are our policies going forward? What can we learn from Trump? Or do we reject Trump? Or do we need another Trumpist? You know, all this will be up for grabs. And the presidential campaign will start immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts basically, uh, you know, the day after election day uh, 2020, if he loses and, you know, Pence will want to run. Nikki Haley will want to run. Pompeo will run, want to run. Tom Cotton will run, want to run. Josh Holly will want to run. And, you know, 15 other people I'm not thinking of Don jr. Uh, might want to run. Um, so it's going to be a fascinating period. And I, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have the crystal ball to tell you how it's going to turn out.
0: (laughs) Well, Rich, where can uh, where can uh, all of our listeners and viewers get a copy of your great book?
1: Thank you so much. Amazon.com.
0: All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Appreciate the conversation. These are great questions. We really appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with national review editor and author, Rich Lowry. If you want to check out our past episodes uh, on subjects, just like this, you can head over to iTunes, SoundCloud, LifesightNews.com under the podcast key or on YouTube. Again, thanks so much for joining us this week. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.